Because right now, the plan is like it is in the books. It's give them the bolt. The bolt is sucked into the pit along with whoever's wearing the shoes, presumably Percy. What does it mean? We'll never know. Maybe Percy's supposed to push the button to let Kronos back up. Maybe that's ah, what this is Ah, he needs someone about. to hold the elevator button. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Monster Jonah, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And if you're like, why does Emily sound worse today? It's because <laughs> I accidentally left my good mic in Connecticut. I, my, my apologies in advance. I hope this isn't too horrendous. Uh, this should this should take y'all back to our first couple episodes. <laughs> yeah, we're really just trying to invoke some nostalgia here, play <laughs> up that nostalgia theme that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Disclaimer at the start of this episode. First of all, spoiler warning for the three Greek and Roman series. Yes. If you haven't read them, enter with caution. Um, we're going to be spoiling the end of the Percy Jackson series right out the gate with this one, at least I am. <laughs> so... Yeah be warned <laughs> and then second disclaimer we have gotten screeners for these last four episodes emily has seen through the end of the season i have not because i refuse to finish this series <laughs> <laughs> is this what you felt like when we were reading trials of apollo phoebe is this what you felt like the whole time having read the fi- having known the final two installments that i didn't i feel powerful yeah i i mean maybe <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, and to be to be clear also, I will not be spoiling anything past episode five. Yeah, I would I would have to jump through the screen and kill you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Personally. So we open on the title in the Merc, loved that. And then we see the aftermath of the fight with the Chimera. The arch is smoking, there are newscasters and police. And at first you think it's them that Grover and Annabeth are worried about looking at them. But then we see what Annabeth is actually looking at. The three fates as they cut an electric blue thread. Our girls, they're here. I love the fates. I was I was very worried when they didn't show up <laughs> in the first episode. I was like, okay, maybe when they start the quest and then they didn't show up. And I was like, okay, guys. <laughs> I will say something about this adaptation that I think is really interesting is I do feel like it's like... I won't realize when things are missing until I sit back and think about it for like a while. Like as I'm watching it, I'm not sitting here being like, oh wait, where are they? Right, like when we didn't realize that the hellhound didn't show up until like long after watching episode two. Yeah, like it's stuff like that where I'll be like, oh yeah, this is how it happens in the books. And then I'll sit back and think about it and be like, wait, no, it's not. But this, this change, this is everything to me because like we spent, we spent some time on this trying to figure out why the fates cut luke's thread in chapter two of the lightning thief do we still think it's luke's thread they can't change that i'd have to yeah. i'd have to kill them <laughs> <laughs> but in the lightning thief we were talking about what happened here that now means that luke dies at the end of the story like not before this moment this wasn't faded but now death is coming for him and soon and we came to an answer that i think we found satisfying enough mm-hmm. at the time in the book but this this is so good. This is this is a great change. Mm-hmm. Well, I have I actually had two different interpretations of it. So I'm curious what you thought. So did I. Are they the same? We'll find out. <laughs> they never are. <laughs> 
Well, so first of all, I wrote down the exact line that this, this thread is snip, which is when Grover is saying, we should probably get out of here, don't you think? That's when they cut it. And Grover is looking at the cops. He's talking about the cops, I believe. He doesn't see the fates. It's just Annabeth. That's at least how I interpreted it. Oh, interesting. I thought that Grover was talking about them and just didn't want to look at them. I No, because he's looking at the cops. He's like, oh, they're looking at us. We should probably get out of here, don't you think? And he's looking at like all the Oh, cops. you know what? You're totally right. Can I? Well, we did get it on record, actually. We recorded that. I'm going to need that sound bite. <laughs> so I have two theories as to why they cut the thread. Assuming the thread means the end of, like, the last Olympian, Luke dying. Theory number one. This is the moment Annabeth begins to trust Percy more than Luke. Hmm. Which to me makes sense because they're, why, they're appearing for her. They're not appearing for Percy. They're not appearing for Grover. They're appearing to her, especially if Grover doesn't even see them. So I feel like it has to be Annabeth-centric. That's, that's, that's theory number one. But no, say more, though. <laughs> Why would this be the moment that Annabeth starts to trust Percy more than Luke? I think this is the, well, I think more this is the moment that Annabeth starts to trust Percy and starts to, like, really care about Percy. Like, this is the moment that has changed in a situation where Annabeth might choose Luke over Percy. Okay. That's theory number one. I like it. It tracks. I have a second theory, which is that's the moment Percy breathes. That's the mm-hmm. moment Percy starts believing in Poseidon, which I'm assuming was one of yours. But yeah, my my theories, I wasn't thinking of them cutting the thread in response to something that Annabeth did. That's a good point that they are specifically showing up for Annabeth. I figured that they were just showing up for Annabeth because Luke is someone who's so special to Annabeth. Like no one loves Luke more than Annabeth. Mm. Other than maybe his mom. But she's already seen the future, so they don't need to show her. (laughs) But I figured that, you know, Percy in this moment is now given a reason to believe in his father. Not only did Poseidon save him, but he got a very explicit message from him saying, I wish I didn't have to watch you struggle like this. I'm, I'm proud of you. I want you to find me when you arrive in Santa Monica because I want to help you. And then realizes that he does have a gift from his father too, the ability to breathe underwater. Yeah. And so all at once, Percy isn't just given a reason to have faith in his father now. He's told, like, he's had his father's love and attention all along. So in that moment, Luke dies sooner rather than later. So my theories branched off from there. Like, that was my assumption of what this moment meant. Mm. There were a couple of different ways that I tried to interpret this. One was that if Percy wasn't given this moment with his father, he would still have no reason to want to be on the quest beyond helping Mm. his mom. And so it's in that moment that he realizes he does have another parent in the picture. So he does have someone else to fight for here. And so as we see in this episode, he has a new dedication to the quest itself succeeding. Mm. And because of that, the war is stopped at the end of the season. And Mm. Luke has to move on to plan B, aka Coffin, aka what gets Luke killed in the end. So that's one version. The more fun answer... Is option two, which is if Percy wasn't given this moment with his father, he wouldn't have a reason not to side with Luke at the end of the season. Like, he would mm. listen to Luke in a way that he won't now, and he might have followed Luke or joined Luke in the end, and his choices wouldn't lead to Luke dying the way that they do if he sides against Luke. Mm. I do think that is really interesting, because I think also those two things, both the Annabeth and the Percy of it all, Um, Both of them are supported by the fact that I feel like they've both hit a very strong turning point going into this episode, which has changed them a lot going forward. I feel like with Percy, he now 
he has something to hold on to, to believe in his dad. And Annabeth, the events of the St. Louis Arch also equally affected her, but in a different way, where she's been shaken to her core in terms of her relationship to her mom. And I think that is really what's playing into her this whole episode. Yeah, that was what I was just putting it together, thinking of reasons why they would appear to Annabeth and why this would actually be about Annabeth. And it was mm-hmm. that the arch scene shook her her relationship with her mother, like you said. Like it opened her eyes to a little bit more of why the Olympians are the way that they are. Blew a hole into the perfect architecture, if you will. Ah, yes. The perfect arch architecture, uh-huh. if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm now I'm trying to finish the thought and thinking, okay, how does that lead to Luke dying at the end? Well, I just love the parallel. I love the symmetry, though, of her and Percy both having their parental relationship shaken Mm -hmm. by the arch scene, but in opposite ways. Like, that's just so good. That's just yummy. That's just good (laughs) writing. Uh, That just gets my my Jimmy's jimmying. I don't know. Um, I don't know what expression I just used there. I'm always saying that. I'm always saying that. But, you know, here's how I connect it. I think she's got all this stuff of, like, rules and wanting to, and, like, wanting to live in her mother's world, wanting to be the perfect person, the perfect child for her mother, the perfect demigod. And I I think by the end of this episode, we see her shift that allegiance to wanting to live more in the world of Percy and Sally Jackson. Mm-hmm. Like she, 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 and she, she kind of realizes her current worldview doesn't work anymore. So she then reaches out for a new one and it's Percy's. Yeah. I am thinking about where we land with Annabeth, like Annabeth's sort of big scenes in this episode, you know, by the end, at the end of this episode, she's saying things like, I don't want to be like you. And she's, she knows now the kind of family that the Olympians are, but it was in this scene on the arch that she saw how different Percy was from that. And so post-Arch has come to that realization that Percy is better than that and that she's going to follow Percy because if she lands in this place where like she's unsure of the gods it's important for her to then have a direction to go in and Percy has now given her a reason to go in his direction rather than following her big brother. Although again though it does come back to Percy also deciding to Percy now not being one to also follow Luke so I think it does come back to the Percy stuff. Yeah it's all connected. I do want to move on, but I also want to talk just a little bit about fate in this episode because I do think it's important for oh yeah the rest of this episode because I think that the fates cutting a thread might be the only kind of foresight that's final in this series. Like oracles and prophecies mm. can be interpreted in a hundred different ways, but there's no other way to interpret the fates measuring and cutting your thread. Like it's cut, it's permanent, it's, it has an ending now. Yeah, so this, I I want to I want to put a pin on this because there's definitely a lot of really interesting stuff about fate that we're already seeing in the work. So we'll have we'll have more to say about fate I think throughout this episode because it comes up yeah. this idea that like of them trying to figure out what that omen from the fates meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll probably come back to it. So they learn that they're getting blamed for both the Amtrak train incident with Echidna as well as the St. Louis Arch incident with Echidna, and that they're not going to be able to book a ticket. So they just start, like, walking down this, like, harrowing road alone. And I know, I didn't notice in the background of one of the shots as Percy's talking, there's a cemetery. It's just so stark. And then just tombstones, white tombstones. And then, like, they just keep going as they're talking about fate. I was like, nice. Oh, I didn't notice. Love that. The line I, I focused on in this scene was where he says, we need to talk about this whole fate thing. 
three old ladies with a ball of yarn can't know what's going to happen. What I choose to do changes what's going to happen. And I can choose to do anything I want. Because I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about like how choice plays into fate. And I just hearing the word choice wrapped up in prophecy and fate and everything always is going to make me think of the great prophecy with a single choice shall end his days. Mm. Like, I mean, he's not wrong. His choices do matter. It's just that all of these choices, there is one thing that is always the same now. That's interesting. I think also this plays into a little bit of something we see come up later in the episode where Percy brings up the fact that he feels like Sally was intentionally keeping him separate from the world and trying to change him to be something different. And I feel like this also plays into that. And that explains to me why he believes this so strongly. Like, I think if Percy's cognizant, at least in some way, of being charged with breaking the cycle, then that makes sense to me that he'd feel strongly like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, there's nothing predetermined about any of this. Right. Percy probably still feels that the rules of this world aren't things that he probably has to follow. I mean, he hasn't really seen proof of the prophecy quite yet, has he? I mean, you shall go west. That's it. There's no god who's turned yet. That's it. They, they've gotten to you shall go west, comma. <laughs> right. Like he's he's been given, he hasn't been given any reason to believe that the fates or the oracle knows anything or has any bearing mm. on his life. So as he continues to realize that there are other, other powers <laughs> involved here, mm. um, maybe he might feel differently from this or he'll hold on to this. I can see St. Louis also maybe having been a turning point in this respect for him too, because I think... This is the point as well where he's starting to feel very strongly like I went out on this quest thinking Grover or probably Annabeth is going to betray me trying to control this prophecy. And now I'm at a place where I trust them both so completely. There's no way. There's no way we could have gone through all of this and for this to end the way the Oracle told me it's going to end. Like I can see how he's in a place now where he's like, no, this is completely different than what I was expecting in a way where I can't even imagine what I thought was going to happen at the start of this. So Ares pulls up on his bike, introduces himself as your big cousin. <sighs> I love Ares in this so much. The, yeah. <laughs> Adam Copeland, my hat off to you. Ares is a hard role. And something I wanted to note about Ares as well is I feel like Ares kind of continues this thing they started with Dionysus Dionysus is the first god we meet, and they it's and the showrunners confirmed this. They they did very intentionally make him feel a lot more just like a guy. Like you don't really get a sense of the godliness of him. And then I feel like with Ares, you get taken from like this is a guy to like this is a god in um their interactions with him in this episode. I also want to make a cute little note on his costume. He ends up being kind of an amalgam of a lot of different wars and periods but his helmet specifically reminds his motorcycle helmet specifically reminds me of world war one also the leather duster he's wearing looks a lot like the description of the nemean lion coat in the titan's curse but he's giving me like world war vibes and then later on i'll talk a little bit more about his shield i went on a bit of a shield deep dive because i was like whose shield is shaped like that it's not that exciting you'll find out later stay tuned um cool (laughs) edge of my seat edge uh, okay. <laughs> so Ares tells them that he is also looking for the bolt. He's here to help them out. And he tells them to meet him at a diner up the road. It's just called Diner. Yeah, it's just called Diner. Um, And as he's driving away, 
Percy says, what kind of family is this? Question of the episode. Love that. Love that for them. Just put in their thesis statement right there. Stamping it on the page. As as always. So they get to to diner and (laughs) find Aries starting fights on Twitter. Everything about this Aries in this diner interacting with these kids is my favorite scene. Yeah. And then all of this. I am obsessed. I think it is because they're all... It's so good. Like, the performances are so good. Like, when Leah just raises that one eyebrow at the end, I was like, (laughs) yes, I am obsessed. And then, oh my god, Ariane is incredible. Ariane is so good in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about this later. And then Walker, I feel like we talk more about Ariane, but, like, Walker and Leah are just perfect. They're just so good. They're perfect. I think, I think for me, I talk more about Ariane just because I feel like I'm not ex- I wasn't expecting a lot from his performance purely because Grover is a character to me just like was never the one I was most interested in. However, in this adaptation, Grover is my favorite. He's my favorite character. Imagine jumping from, you know, favorite characters in this book were Percy, Annabeth, Luke, Clarice. <laughs> Imagine jumping all of them to the top of my list. I just I'm obsessed with all of this. Um I love that Aries is the one that breaks the news about Gabe as well. Mm-hmm. Also, like, he's saying, I'm getting into a war on Twitter, and then he shows a video of Gabe. Like, what? what's going on there? Was he arguing about Percy on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I bet Aries is the first Percy anti on Twitter. That's gotta yes. be. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Someone on there was saying, he's just a 12-year-old boy. He couldn't have caused that, and Aries is on there, like... He's a monster. If you have you watched this clip of his stepdad talking about him, he's been a monster from the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm glad that it's Aries who does it because it just it feels so natural at the end of seeing this Gabe on the news clip for Percy to say, I'm gonna kill him. The closest we've gotten to I'm gonna kill her. Our favorite line. <laughs> I was like, in a way, I've gotten what I wanted. <laughs> but I like that it's Aries that's bringing that side of Percy out. This is the interesting thing. We don't really see him bringing out the anger as much in everyone else, but this is accurate to the book because Percy is the most susceptible to it. But what I enjoy about this, though, is it doesn't feel supernatural. It just feels like Percy's like... Yeah, no, I. this was something that I was thinking about at the end of the episode when Percy gets, like, actually angry at Ares. Yeah. And just the way that, you know, it doesn't feel like... Aries using his aura or his powers to get you angry it's um like Annabeth says I think later in the scene that he's going to talk and get in your head and he's going to say things that are going to make you angry like it's just the way that he works and so him showing Percy here's the news knowing it's going to make Percy angry Mm. and in this episode like he's the one who falls for the things that Aries says and does Mm. to try and get him angry while Annabeth. I do think she acts a lot bolder towards him than she mm-hmm. maybe would have normally. I just, yes. I do think he brings out the boldness in her. Hmm, maybe that's something we can talk about later, is what he's bringing out of all three of these guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Grover, Grover's interaction with him is, is something. My favorite scene. Like, period. That's my yeah. favorite scene. And not just because you predicted it. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't, he's not eating a cheeseburger. I thought there'd be like a funny comedy of like errors where Aries keeps pushing a cheeseburger towards him and Grover's like, I don't eat meat. I was expecting a bit more back and forth than that. I did not expect this scene. No, I was like, no one could have predicted this. <laughs> <laughs> um, important line from this scene, Aries finally talks to Percy and tells the audience about Kronos. He says, you're new to the family, young one, so let me fill you in on how we work. And then uses Kronos as, like, the ultimate example. He says that that's, that 
story is what set the tone for the rest of the way that the family Mm -hmm. dynamic would be and then he says olympians fight we betray we backstab we will push anyone down a flight of stairs to get ahead interesting phrasing (laughs) i know i was sitting here like okay he's clearly parroting percy my question is does he know that and if so how an informant on the inside who was there when it was said (laughs) who said Percy said Annabeth would push him down a flight of stairs. (laughs) This is important information that I'm relaying. Here's how I'm making sense of it in my head. I can see how maybe, like, they're hearing about the quest going forward and the, you know, Ares knowing full well what's coming up is, like, keeping tabs on it. Like, if he's like, oh, I should check, I should tune in. It always makes me wonder, like, if you're a god, like, and your kid's in this choosing ceremony, are you going to pay attention in case they get chosen? Maybe. I wasn't thinking this much about this. I wasn't thinking this much about why Ares knew this. I was thinking more about the fact that we're using these words again to align the reason that Annabeth was brought on this quest with the Olympians. Mm. Because we're going to like break that down later in the episode. Um, to say that this this whole attitude that Annabeth has, it is an Olympian attitude. Mm. Oh, also, it's not only the first time that we're really talking about Kronos. It's also one of the first times we're really talking about Zeus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zeus is like who we're on this quest for, essentially. But we know nothing about that guy. <laughs> so here is where we actually get, you know, as our sort of introduction, as some of as one of our introductory lines to Zeus, saying that Zeus is probably doing this no matter what. He will he he just thinks it's time for a war, and so we're gonna have a war. Like all of this is just a reason to fight, but this fight is going to happen no matter what. That being how we, as the audience, are being introduced to Zeus. Yeah. Like, I feel like at this point, the big gods that we've been setting up are Athena and Poseidon as these, like, Mm -hmm. threats who we're not allowed to see who are working from the outside. And it's here that we're like, oh, this other guy. Don't forget Zeus, who is above all of it. It's also interesting, because when Ares is talking about all of this, he's like, that's my family! I love him, which makes sense. He's into the chaos of it all, the war of it all, the violence of it all. And I do think it's really interesting that we're starting with him and ending with Hephaestus in this um, also. Yeah. So at the end of the scene, crucial change. Ares keeps Grover there as collateral to make sure that they come back after he sends them to go find his shield at Waterland, the abandoned theme park up the road. This was very interesting to me because it felt very reminiscent of the part in the book where um, they're debating who gets left behind in the underworld. And Grover is like, I'll do it. Obviously me. And he's, it's like the same kind of vibe. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but we'll learn that that's not exactly what's going through Grover's head at this point. Yes, yes. But then we find out he, he is a man on a mission. He's been, he's been thinking. He's got his little detective notebook out. He's ready to Hercule Poirot. He's, he's gonna be his alter ego Hemlock Holmes. Good one. (laughs) Can you draw Hemlock Holmes, please? (laughs) So first, we get Percy and Annabeth entering Waterland. Yes. And we find out Annabeth has never seen any kind of movie. Who doesn't show their seven-year-old movies? I know. (laughs) So I'm sitting here like, what kind of household is this? Like, that's... Like, Frederick Chase, a failure as always. <laughs> Maybe she didn't know they were movies, actually. Because I'm just thinking about, like, how my dad loves... Is a huge history buff and loves nothing more than a black and white war movie. And I remember as a kid, every Sunday, 
he'd put on Formula One, which I bored me to tears. I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry to all who love Formula One. I do not. Um, especially when I was a child. Bored me to tears. And then he'd put on like a four, three to four hour long black and white war, war movie afterwards. And we'd be like, okay, I guess dad gets his TV time too. But I remember like trying to watch it and just being like, I hate this. This is terrible. <laughs> Frederick so Chase things. <laughs> I'm imagining Frederick Chase doing that. Like, why would you want to see a Disney movie? Why would you want to see Wizard of Oz? No. I'm crying imagining the, the Percy Annabeth uh, movie nights after this, though. I know. And I was like, they're setting up the movie nights. They're establishing <laughs> why movies are their thing. This right? They're the establishing game. why they go on so many movie dates. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they just need to go see G-Force after C-Blast. Right. G-Force. And what was the other one that we... Surf's Up. Surf, Surf's, Surf's Up and G-Force. There are two dates. Yeah. So there's Surf's Up date and their G-Force date. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to count that as a point towards emotional abuse on Frederick Chase's part, though. I'm... Yes. So they go through... Or they attempt to go through the turnstile at the amusement park when they realize that there is some kind of machine coming down and it looks like it's about to kill Percy. And this is such a good Annabeth moment mm -hmm. because we haven't gotten too much of Annabeth flexing her skills in the show so far. Like this is something I've, I've heard from a couple of non-book people in my life who are watching the show mm -hmm. is that they keep hearing that Annabeth is a great warrior, that she's 10 steps ahead of everyone else, but they haven't seen enough proof of it yet. And this episode feels like that moment for her and for the audience getting to know her this season. It's not just the fact that she, you know, looks up at this machinery and is able to, just from looking at it, figure out what it does. But it's also her making jokes. She's the one making the jokes in this scene. I know! And her getting lost in the machinery and that little, that moment where she's like, yeah. oh, that's cool. <laughs> I love all the little moments here, especially when she tells a joke versus like, that's not funny. She's like, yes, it is. It's a little funny. <laughs> Like, this is just such pure, like, concentrated Annabeth personality. And I love that we get, like, her being funny. I love that, because I feel like mm -hmm. she hasn't been that funny lately. She hasn't been that funny yet, and she is. No, we were saying in book one that in that book, to me at least, Annabeth was the funniest character in that book. She's really <laughs> funny. But I do want to note the line she says about the machine. I'm going to read it, which is, The machine isn't designed to hurt us, just to scare us. It's a test. Because... I do want to take that line as foreshadowing for mm -hmm. the second machine we encounter in this episode. Because there's we bookend the Hephaestus encounter with two machines, two things, two Annabeths figuring her way out. And it's important to note the parallels as well as the differences, I think. Yeah. To the, the joke that Annabeth makes, um, and the, per the question that Percy asks is, why do we think Hephaestus built the theme park? Yeah, I have so many questions about this theme park. I have not figured out the answer. I have thoughts, though. I have so many thoughts. What I found most striking is they're walking around, and they're remarking multiple times, like, this feels like a horror movie, or at least Percy is, because Annabeth hasn't seen any movies. It really reminded me, again, thinking about Titan's Curse, I was thinking about the, gra the, the graveyard, not the graveyard, the... Oh, the junkyard. Because I was looking at it, and I'm thinking, like, this is a huge amusement park. And it's, it's not, I didn't really pick out any really unusual rides. Like, it didn't seem that otherworldly to me. The only part that seemed otherworldly was, like, the counter walking through the door. And I do want to note that it is nighttime, and they're, they're the first two to go in there. So, like, who's going to this place? 
like it, it, it makes me fascinated with this depiction of Hephaestus because they made the choice that instead of the ride just being a trap he laid, knowing that Ares and Aphrodite were going to do this as a date, mm-hmm. this whole park is his domain. Again, it's just like, it's desolate. It's broken down too. That's the other thing that was driving me. Like, cause it's, there's lights flickering everywhere. There's, there's, it's not in good repair. It is broken down. This is Hephaestus's baby, yeah. theoretically. Why is it broken down? Exactly. <laughs> it, like, I walked in with Percy being like, hmm, why would, why would he make this? And then the further into it I got, I was like, why would he make this? Why would he make this? <laughs> I know. And did you notice the one time, the only time the attraction really, like, focuses, there's these, like, uh, it's like a, a small roller coaster, like, bumper car type situation, and there's, like masks and faces on the front and i was like those look kind of like the theatrical masks and i'm like what's going on is this theater as a roller coaster girl i was looking at that thinking it's not physically possible for a roller coaster car to be stopped like that (laughs) (laughs) like it shouldn't stop on the way down like there's no there's nothing that should stop it like that it was funny because i was i was like well that doesn't make sense and then annabeth looked up at it and she was like yeah this place is definitely built by like the god of craftsmen or something that I think is her line. And I was like, oh, because that you looked at that and also thought, well, that doesn't make physical sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Right. So we head to the we head to the diner for the first of our Grover Aries scenes. So Grover tells Aries that they've met before at the winter solstice, um, which we learn throughout this scene is when the children of the gods come to Olympus every year. To do a presentation. presentation. <laughs> what is the presentation? <laughs> I'm just picturing like a PowerPoint party. I like, know. I, <laughs> I was like, is it just like your year in review? Like, what is it? What is that? TED Talk. But Aries hears this and immediately assumes Grover was a protester. There were protesters at Olympus on the solstice. What does that mean? What does any of this mean? <laughs> Are there people protesting the gods at these functions? Like, what specifically are they protesting? Climate change? I don't know. I don't know. And then we get some deep cut lore drops of the turbot war. Turbots are kind of fish. Yeah. The lobster war. The mm-hmm. 335 years war. I had to Google all of these. What did you find? Most of them are wars where actually no one died. Ares says, like, hardly anyone died in those wars. And, like, a lot Wait, of them, those are no real one wars? Died in those wars. I assumed they were nature wars. No, they're real. They're real. Wait, they're real wars? They're all humans. Like the lobster war is like, I'll read you just like the top of the Wikipedia page for each of these. Okay. The turbot war was an international fishing dispute and bloodless conflict between Canada and Spain and their respective supporters. The lobster war was a dispute over spiny lobsters that occurred from 1961 to 1963 between Brazil and France. The Brazilian government refused to allow fishing French fishing vessels to catch spiny lobsters 100 miles off Brazil's northeastern coast by arguing that lobsters crawl along the continental shelf. Uh, the 335 years war was an alleged state of war between the Netherlands and the Isle of Scilly, located off the southwest coast of Great Britain and its existence is disputed. Uh, It is said to have been extended by the lack of a peace treaty for 335 years, without a single shot being fired, which would make it one of the world's longest wars and a bloodless war. This is the the stuff that Grover is. Yes, they are his deep cuts. Oh my god. Why did I just assume they were made up like nature wars? Why, Why did I do that? 
I, I like mine better. <laughs> I thought the turban war was a fish, a war between the fish. <laughs> he uses these wars to convince Ares that he is a fan of his. He explains that nature is brutal and you'll find war there too. And says there's something cool about overwhelming force and a quick surrender. Yeah. I love that line. <laughs> That's a line. That's another line where um, I wrote in my notes, Grover's Percying him. Although mm-hmm. we haven't seen Percy Percy anybody yet. I know. I was like, this is his Procrustes right I now. I guess it's Grovering. I guess it's we're going to have to call it Grovering now. Yeah. Yeah. Hemlock Holmes. Hemlock Holmesing. <laughs> so we cut back to Percy and Annabeth and they see the thrill ride of love. Hephaestus and his ironic naming. Because as we will see when we get in the tunnel, it's all about him and his relationship to his family. So I love that he's not calling it the tunnel of love. He's calling it the thrill ride of love, which I think, and like the horror vibes of it all, I think really imply like, this is what love is to Hephaestus because this is what he has experienced. Yeah. And we have the most iconic needle drop I've ever heard in my life. I love that Percy only knows this song from the orthodontist office. Why is he going to the orthodontist office? I know. I was like, braces? What's going on? Braces, Percy? Rubber bands, at least, at the very least. Rubber bands, Percy has existed and I haven't seen him. <laughs> but what really, I mean, it's it's funny at first and then it gets really sad. It gets so sad. As you watch Hephaestus's story play out on the walls and see him rejected yes. by Hera and thrown off Olympus and then rejected by Aphrodite. And you've got what is love? <laughs> Baby, Baby don't, don't hurt, hurt me, me playing in your, in your ear. Although there's some really interesting stuff with this too, because I, so I watched the episode and then I realized that I wasn't as well versed in a lot of the Hephaestus lore as I want it to be. So I went and I looked into all of this and then I rewatched it again. What's interesting about this animation we see, as per a lot of Greek myths, there's a few different versions of his story. One thing that's really interesting though about his story is some of the discrepancies are not text to text. Usually in like a narrative text, like say the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's only one version of a myth given. Apparently in one of the books of the Iliad, Hephaestus is depicted and it talks about his origin and it mentions Hera cast him off Olympus. And then later in the Iliad, it changes the story to Zeus casting him off. And there is discrepancy Mm. in a lot of different versions over who threw him off Olympus and why. And one of the things I thought was interesting was during this part of the animation, It cuts to Percy's face. We don't see who throws him off. We just see him getting thrown off by somebody. And this is important to the chair story. Right, which is also messy, which is also two different versions in the same room. (laughs) And it's as we're watching this that we get this really, really good exchange between Percy and Annabeth. Mm -hmm. Percy says that his mom told him all of these stories and says, this is what the gods are like to each other. This is the kind of family that they are. He goes on to say, she was trying to keep me away from you guys. Maybe you were right. Maybe she should have been preparing me better. It's it's in addition to the, uh, you know, we talked, uh, we've talked a bit about <laughs> Sally telling Percy these stories and here getting another layer to that of she's trying to make sure that you don't end up like this adds to her standing there and saying, the people who look like heroes might not be heroes and the people who look like monsters might not be monsters. And like, what makes you think Perseus was a hero? Like, you just know, you know she told the full version of all of those myths. I was like, you know she didn't stop at Theseus saving the day. (laughs) As he's talking about sharing this revelation also, this is when we see on the, projected on the screen, not the screen, the wall, 
Ares going off with Aphrodite, holding his shield. And Hephaestus like sinks to his knees and is shaking his fist. And that looks like a, he looks like a Disney villain. Then we see Ares raise his hand and smack him. And that is when the, the thrill ride begins. Yeah, I would have had my hands up. Both of them are losing points in my book for not enjoying this a little bit. <laughs> we do know Percy loves roller coasters from the last Yeah, time. I was like, get it together, Percy. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, they do feel like they've, they both have been sitting there like, we've walked into a horror movie. Well, for, again, Percy has because Annabeth hasn't seen movies, but. I just think I would be enjoying myself. <laughs> it looks like fun. Yeah. I do want to talk briefly about, like, whenever there's shadows on the wall, you have to, like, at least give a quick mention to Plato and the allegory of the cave. Because I think that's, like, a part of Greece that a lot of people are familiar with. It, it's essentially the allegory is about this idea that if what's in front of you your whole life is all you've known, then that's that's what you think reality is. That's what you think things are. And you have to be kind of brought out of that in order to understand that there's more to it, essentially. And so I, I feel like this felt a little like a nod to that, especially because as we transition into the thrill ride part, because it starts off with this very industrial, almost sewer-like tunnel. And then we get brought into like stalactite stalagmite cave situations they're all there's lighting there's lighting in there there's different colors they look like teeth and i couldn't help but think about dictan cave when i when they were going through because that's the cave that like zeus grew up with grew up in on crete that he was ferried away to like there's a lot of caves in greece that look like that that gods are ferreted into here and there and everywhere and i do think hephaestus's story at least one of them once he gets cast off olympus involves some amount of being tended presumably in a cave like that so there's a little bit of a similarity in his Zeus's story in that way and then we get into this chamber the room chamber the puzzle the, I don't know what to call it I guess the puzzle room makes sense the puzzle chamber <laughs> I think I've solved some of this you solved their cave puzzle but there are details that I have not figured out I uh, feel similarly I think I got some of it but not all of it so yeah, how, how what it, how was how how did you solve the cave puzzle, Phoebe? Not solved it. Not solved it. I just have a piece of it and I I trusted that you were going to fill in the gaps. So I I paused on all of these frescoes and there, I didn't figure out most of them. I mean, I didn't deep dive in the way I probably could have. I only really mm -hmm. tried to solve one, um which was the one that's sort of to the right of the throne because I figured that the figure in it, because there was a satyr there, was probably Dionysus. Mm -hmm. So I googled Dionysus Hephaestus story, and the very first thing that comes up is the throne story. I actually found what I think this fresco was actually based on, like a, there's, a, there's a vase that has basically <laughs> this exact image on it. And I found a couple different accounts of it, but a lot of them don't include what Percy says here, which is Dionysus using Aphrodite as a bargaining chip. Mm. Instead, a lot of them, after Hephaestus binds Hera to the chair and runs, no one can convince him to come back to Olympus, but Dionysus comes to Hephaestus and gets him drunk. And that's how he brings him, he forces him back. Which is, I think what this one, this fresco behind them is based on, is him being dragged back on the donkey. Because he looks kind of defeated in that mm -hmm. painting. Which was curious to me, considering that's not the story that Percy is telling. Because what Percy says is that it was a deal that brought him back to Olympus, a, a deal for Aphrodite's hand. And so there are just, there are two different versions of this myth living in the same room. But there were other, like, there were other pictures on the walls, like Hephaestus talking to someone much smaller than him wearing red, and mm -hmm. 
like with someone flying overhead with like a cloak of some sort. Didn't know what that was. Um, and then there was one of him with like a swan or a bird or something and someone mm-hmm. with the bottom half of a snake walking with him. Didn't know what that was. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I was more, I I kind of pushed those to the side when I realized that this one at the back was that story. And I was like, why would he put that on the walls of his own? Like, why would he put this sort of hum- humiliating moment for him on the walls of this room? So. Um, <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> My break in the case was the snake man. Good. Good, because I want to know what's up with that. <laughs> There's a vase that dates to 6th century BC um, called the Francois vase that also depicts this story, and it has that image of Dionysus riding the donkey that is closely reproduced but not exactly reproduced on one of the frescoes directly behind the throne. Um, and I, was, I looked at the vase because I was like, because my first guess, my first thought was, oh, I wonder if they just recreated the vase. Because the vase also has a bunch of stories that are not this, that are like Theseus, Perseus, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, that would be funny if that was Perseus. And there's one other fresco that's directly behind the throne. So when there's a shot of the throne and the automaton, you see the figure of Hephaestus in the painting holding the hammer right next to it. So I was like, oh, I wonder if this is the story. But then I'm looking at the frescoes and I noticed that the horses or donkeys are all facing in different directions, opposing directions. And normally in Greek po- in poetry, norm- normally in Greek pottery, when it's all part of the same story, that doesn't really happen. Like, it's off. It doesn't tell a linear narrative. And then I was looking at another, the one next to it, it looked like Dionysus, but there's two people on a horse. And I was like, what's going on there? That doesn't, that's not part of this story. And then the one with Hephaestus identifiable in it, it looks like it's, I thought I identified it as Aphrodite and Eros. Aphrodite is the figure, he's going up to with the hammer and Eros is like above them. Then I was looking around more and more. So there's one where he's on a chariot with no horse. There's one where, I think he's on another chariot and there's a snake dude. And then there's one where it seems like he's holding this big, cool shield. I think all of those frescoes are moments of triumph for Hephaestus. So him riding up to Olympus, having one on the donkey, that's a moment of triumph. Him marrying Aphrodite, moment of triumph. The the snake man one, um, I originally thought it was Kekrops, who was the first king of Athens, and I looked up an image of Kekrops on a vase, almost identical. However, I found another vase that it was about Hephaestus being buddy-buddy with Dionysus um, as part of his India campaign and fighting some, like, river god or something. And it looked very similar. So I was like, oh, okay, so it's him fighting this river god. And then the shield one, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's him forging, like, the armor of Achilles. Because the shield of Achilles is, like, a big thing with all these stories on it. Um, so I was looking around, and when, when I, that kind of came all came together for me where I was like, oh, I think these are supposed to be, like, his most triumphant moments. But also a lot of them are tinged because like the marrying Aphrodite we know that doesn't end well for him being brought back up to Olympus like he's on a donkey like it's not really a moment of triumph like you were saying yeah him forging someone else's shield who gets super famous like it's it's never like you know like there are moments celebrating him but yeah that was how I solved the cave puzzle and yet it's still not solved still more questions (laughs) what are your questions why would he make this room? Well, so this is where I get to the temple situation, where basically it feels like he was making himself a temple. And I think how, like, deserted it is and how 
it's so lonely the vibe like like you just get this feeling of like loneliness I feel like really permeates it but I found it really interesting because I think Hephaestus is also painted as so much as an outsider to the Olympians in this episode and also in the books Mm -hmm. and so like the fact that he's having to build his own temple I think is part of it and I think also the fact or that he feels like he needs to build his own temple at least because he obviously I mean he has kids they'll build up temples but like the fact that he feels like he needs to build his own temples, the fact that, like, his glory is not tied to, like, much in the way of great deeds he's done. It's, like, stuff he's made for people, you know? It's, like, to mm-hmm. do other cooler stuff with. It's, like, you know, a failed marriage, essentially. Yeah. And also the fact that this temple is, like, behind bars where no, it's hidden, where no one can get to it. Yeah. Like, who's going to come worship you here? Yeah. Who's, you've made it, it's a death trap. <laughs> why did you make your temple a death trap and i feel like that's why it's so lonely though because it's not a temple to him it's like a temple to like all of the stories about him it's like a monument to how much his family's fucked up like fucked him <laughs> up like yeah that's why i think it feels so wrong and i think that's why he built it like that's why it's called the thrill ride of love is you get the whiplash and I, I do feel like Ares' shield is actually the trophy. That I feel like it's like, look at what I've taken from the gods almost to me, because there's the throne and then there's Ares' shield. Mm-hmm. It feels like these are like trophies of him getting one over on the gods. It feels like it's like supposed to be a sanctuary and testament to all, of, all that he's done, but it feels hollow because like that's not who he is. Mm. And yet, this is apparently where he's spending time. That's apparently where he's hanging out right now. Just fascinates me. Who is this man, God <laughs> guy? Right. Maybe maybe we'll piece this together as we continue. <laughs> so, to bring us back to what actually happens in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! How long have we been talking about just the frescoes? I have no idea. <laughs> so they spot the shield, and they also spot that if they stay in this boat, they're gonna get smashed by something. And so they jump into the water, and Annabeth pretty immediately starts drowning. <laughs> Can Annabeth not swim? Or is she just not a strong swimmer? Or is it just the current? Because it it looks rough down there and like Percy struggles to make it to her, but she also doesn't even really take a a single stroke. Plus she shouts when she jumps in, which tells me that she's not jumping in with confidence in the way that Percy is. Mm. Because I'm thinking about Annabeth tries to swim home and how scary Mm. that scene becomes if Annabeth isn't a strong swimmer to begin with. Oh, that's good. But then... Percy uses his powers to save Annabeth. And it seems like it's a reflex because when they get out of the water, she's like, thanks for saving me. And he's like, even though like he clearly did, he's like, no, I didn't. Yeah, I we've seen him do something like this twice before now. Once activi- activated by anger with Nancy. And then once, I think in the book, the bathroom scene is also by anger. But here it felt more like fear, which is probably also what's happening here is fear and desperation and i think this specifically like him being able to do it and call on it not intentionally but in a moment where he needs it rather than it being just sort of like a weird reflex is likely tied up in his new faith in his father and in Mm. his abilities now that he you know he knows he can breathe underwater now he knows that his father is helping him he has that belief like we talked about last time where we were saying that the water might not be healing him because he doesn't believe in his dad and he doesn't believe in its ability Mm. to so I kind of expect to see 
like a a big jump in Percy powers. Maybe he'll stay dry. The ability to stay dry. I don't think that'll ever happen. They love making Walker look wet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then we get another interesting intercut. Yes. Um, First of all, Arius goes on a tirade about how much he hates his own kids. Like, he's just saying the quiet part out loud for all of the gods. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) I was like, I'm so sorry, Clarice. (laughs) I know. And it's like, we just seen how he treated Hephaestus as well. Like, the raising the hand thing. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be a thing. And it's here in this scene that Grover starts to spell out who we're looking for. Who the thief might be. And Grover has already figured some things out. He says that it was probably one of the kids who stole the Master Bolt. Which isn't really something that we've talked about yet. The fact that it might have been one of the kids. He says that not many could have pulled off the job. He says someone who could slip away long enough without being missed, bold enough to cross Zeus, and stealthy enough to get their hands on the thing. The combination of these two things, the the Ares starting out by saying how much he doesn't like his kids, and this, I'm, I'm putting together like, because at the end of this episode, Grover says that he has figured out who the lightning thief is. And I was like, no, you have not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I know that like the lead suspect is probably Clarice. This is a line of thought that does happen in the books too. Yeah, like this is this is when you start to suspect Clarice. But mm-hmm. a keen observer is going to look at this and think it shouldn't be Clarice because you've got Ares out the gate saying, I hate my kids. <laughs> and if the lead suspect here is Clarice, immediate clue... He's not protecting Clarice. He doesn't care about Clarice. And then over here we get this description of who the thief might be. And it doesn't really describe Clarice. Clarice is a loud presence. She's a known presence. And she's not from what we've seen. You know, stealthy isn't how I describe Clarice. (laughs) Uh, No, she's the whatever the opposite of that is. (laughs) And so I like that, you know, at the end of this episode and I'm assuming for the rest of the season, we're sort of going to be led to think that it might be Clarice but if you're paying attention you're gonna pick up on no there's some clues here that Grover's not picking up on this isn't Clarice Mm -hmm. but as Grover's explaining all this Aries says enough not everything is a puzzle that needs to be solved another clue that Grover picks up on because Aries clearly has no real interest in finding the vault and then Grover says something very interesting again to manipulate Aries into talking more but also very interesting in light of the rest of the episode which is, uh, he's saying, that's Athena, always, quote, always making things more complicated than they need to be, so we'll always think she's smarter. Interesting description of Athena, Grover. First of all, you're going to incur her wrath. I know. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> but I thought that was also really interesting in light of the puzzles thus far. Not not the cave puzzle. The puzzles our heroes are trying to solve in this episode. Mm-hmm. Where that's, I think, such a perfect description of the device getting into Waterland, where it's, like, always making things more complicated than they need to be, so we think we'll we'll think they're dangerous in that case. Like, this idea that, like, you can keep people out by making things seem so complicated, but they're not. That's that's what the gate is for into Waterland. And I think it makes it interesting as well, considering how much Annabeth has all these opinions on rules, and, like, how much of those are unnecessary. You know what I'm saying? Like, all this information we get from Athena, now we must question it. And it's also, it's just kind of how the, because this is a mystery, it's kind of how this mm-hmm. whole story works, is that it's it's complicating itself more and more so that you lose the fact that the answer is directly in front of you. Yeah, which is how any good mystery is written, too. 
Yeah, like it's just adding more and more things for you to start thinking about. And it's also the way that it's kind of the way that prophecies work. They tell you the answer and then you sit there complicating it and complicating it for yourself. And it's just it's not it's not all that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I especially liked the line. It's like people only see what they want to see and ignore anything Mm -hmm. at all that doesn't fit the story. They like to tell themselves that feels like such a, you know, in just in this episode, but also throughout this show, we've had different versions of myths we've had all of this you know you have to sit there and question what you're going to include in your version of the story basically and what you're going to believe and what you're going to ignore which i mean i found it particularly interesting in this episode because the versions of the stories that were being told weren't the same versions um and that hephaestus was just a a character you know, you spend, I, I at least spent this whole episode trying to figure him out. But it's because you wish that he fit neatly into just one of the stories that you know. And like, that's how people build their ideas of the gods or the monsters is by going with whatever version suited them best. And it's also on a more basic level, like that's how the mist works, because people see what they want to see. And then iconic moment, Grover puts it all together. He says, like, you being the one to find the lightning thief and not her genius he's everything to me (laughs) like even if grover is slightly wrong here the logic makes so much sense yeah he found the lightning thief and olympus doesn't care like they want a war Ares found the thief and not athena it didn't fit their narrative and Ares is angry about that (laughs) Mm. like that that makes so much sense to me as the line of logic that grover is following yeah that's also interesting because I'm now connecting that too to like the the Hephaestus story with the throne where it's like, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Supposed to be Ares, but it was Hephaestus. Yeah. Although in that case, then the, the Olympians kind of just all went along with it. They were like, yeah, it wasn't you, Ares. Oh, well. Mm. But this time, I guess it's the same thing where they're like, yeah, it was you, Ares. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> we're all going to fight anyway. Um, but yeah. we'll find out, I'm assuming, at the end of the series that is not the way that that story went but he he landed on the right answer Ares did find the lightning thief and not her I just I love Grover for this so much I'm going to talk more about this when we get to the next scene because I feel like I I found them speaking to each other in an interesting way well so I'll I'll talk a little bit more about Grover then but I just love this I love this um back to the throne scene not the throne scene you wanted not the throne scene I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw this in the trailer, there was a moment where I was like, hail the conquering hero. I'll miss her. The part that's interesting to me is the fact that, because again, we're talking about this being weird fucking vibes for a temple. And also the fact that like, by mechanism, it demands a sacrifice. I don't know. I just something that's so interesting to me, because it's almost like it doesn't give you the choice that like, makes a sacrifice meaningful it's like no if you want this you have to it's a quid pro quo in a way that i think a lot of sacrifices at least the way we think about them now aren't um also like it's for Ares' shield which is clearly very old who like it feels like it's designed for Ares and aphrodite to have to choose to get Ares' shield like it feels like it's like made for mm. them yeah. although it's an interesting shield most greek shields are circular like i thought for a moment i was like is he gonna get the classic spartan shield which is the circular full bronze situation that you might have seen in the movie 300 and it's not it's like this almond shape it's very interesting and 
It looks like it's made of bronze, and it's very old, but I was looking into the shield types because I'm me, and it's actually a Byzantine shield, so much, much, much later, although it's apparently supposed to be a callback to the Hellenistic shields, like the time of Alexander the Great. Still very not Bronze Age. Neither of those are Bronze Age. So I'm sitting here, and I'm like, but this isn't like his most ancient shield. It's Byzantine. That's the common era. Hmm. So it, it looks like, to me, it's just, like, a random backup shield that's got his, like, logo on it. Like, I feel like oh, he's got it's, like, not something he on. actually cares about at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, I feel like Hephaestus stole it from him at some point, and uh, it's just, like, kind of been sitting here for forever. It's, like, a trophy he has. Yeah. Okay, I mean, it's it's interesting that Hephaestus would steal this shield from Ares and then put it in a version of the story in the trap that, like, won him... <laughs> the woman who Ares is in love with is mm-hmm. just uh, forcing Ares into this room where he's surrounded by Hephaestus's various glories. Just a funny little torture chamber. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it just feels so bizarre, but it just feels kind of made for it. Like, what? why else is it here? Like, who else is going to want that shield? Who else is going to think it's worth it to get that shield? Because also, like, trophies are glory. So he did steal a little bit of Ares's glory. Mm-hmm. We haven't even talked about this person no. in the scene. We need to actually start talking about what happens instead of theorizing about what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so they realize they have to make this sacrifice to get the shield in order to continue the quest. Both immediately jump to sacrifice themselves. This was a great scene, so I just found myself writing down a lot of the dialogue here. Yeah. Percy's still sort of saying to Annabeth, like, you're better at this than me. Like, you're still part of, you're part of this world, basically. You're, he's sort of reinforcing pre-St. Louis Arch Annabeth's sort of, like, whole deal, which is like, you're the leader, you're better at this, you actually know what you're doing, you belong in this world. I am an outsider still. But also here it doesn't feel like he's saying it like that. He also is saying it like, I admire you. I admire your skill. I see you as being... A hero, essentially. Right. And you're the most likely person to actually, you know, like if if I'm the one that walks out of here, what are my Mm -hmm. chances compared to you? Yeah. I think he also is also thinking like, I can't get her out of this situation, but she could maybe get me out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And I also that these lines that Percy had, uh, we're going to have to come back to fate (laughs) because Percy says, you were right. I hate to admit it, but the fates were right or something like that. Um, There's no getting around this. We dodged it at the arch, barely, but maybe this isn't something you can dodge forever. And Annabeth argues back that the oracle chose him, that the gods chose him. This idea of Percy kind of accepting that, like, sacrifice is something that might be inevitable for him. Because, like, he just, he just tried it. He just did it. It didn't work, and now he has to do it again. And it's like, it's kind of the Jason situation. (laughs) A little. It's a little bit of the Jason situation where it's well, like... and then it gets turned to gold, so it is actually a lot of the Jason It is a little situation. bit, a lot of bit, the Jason situation where <laughs> <laughs> you're sort of destined to die, and so the story's gonna keep trying to kill you and be like, ah, not that one. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of the vibe that I'm getting right now, just because Percy has now escaped from sacrificing himself twice i'm like this is gonna be a thing this is <laughs> because this is also like we've talked a lot about how percy's fatal flaw doesn't feel fatal in the books very much but here at least the loyalty part mm. feels very fatal because he keeps trying mm-hmm. to sacrifice himself it's like he's he is destined to die because he mm-hmm. just keeps trying to sacrifice himself because he's 
so loyal to the people around him. And that that is what I felt watching this scene, that this is going to end up getting him killed eventually. Mm-hmm. My favorite part was, I think, what is going to be most pe- most people's favorite parts, which is when Annabeth lets Percy sacrifice himself. And she says, just promise me one thing. And she just says immediately, I'll get your mom back. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, actually, I was going to say, can you, like, come come get me after? <laughs> and then you, you, did you really think you had to ask? Like, <laughs> I know. And I just, the moment I, again, they're, they're actors. They're acting. <laughs> with, with Percy sitting on the throne and the, like, it's okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, over and over. As if, like, reassuring her to the last second, but also as if he's reassuring himself. It was just, ugh. So good. <laughs> My question with that was, is there a parallel with that with Sally at some point, like with the swimming lesson or something? Like, it's Percy being the one going into the dangerous situation, being the one to reassure. It's like him re- him telling his mom to breathe, him being the one that's, like, comforting her, even though it's him that's, like, the most afraid. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a character trait we are establishing of him, where he's going to be comforting other people first before. And which we, I think you mentioned in the book, which is what he does with Grover mm-hmm. at the end of Minotaur scene. But we're seeing it established elsewhere now, I guess. So Percy has turned to gold. I was just hit with so much appreciation for the fact that none of this is in the book. <laughs> I know. Well, so here's the other thing we haven't really touched on. In the book... It's like the other Hephaestus trapping story, right? Mm-hmm. So they looked to what was there, which was the one of Hephaestus uh, trapping, Aphrod- catching Aphrodite and Ares together, trapping them, making all the gods mock them. I'm so curious what the thought process was. Like, I know. This, <laughs> when did they want, when did they, when were they like, you know what? Let's do the other Hephaestus story. Let's do the one where it's not about humiliation. In a way, it's about Hephaestus's humiliation. Like, let's do mm-hmm. that one. You know what I'm also thinking about is, to quote you, it's the second draft, right? Because what this scene actually is, is introducing Hephaestus. Which is, yeah. I wonder if they went back and were like, what if instead of depicting Hephaestus as somebody who's just out to be jealous like the rest of the gods, who's just out to do like this trivial stuff, what if we make him different? What if we set him apart? And I was also thinking about this because this particular story um, involves Dionysus, and there's a lot of depictions of Dionysus on the wall with Hephaestus. And it made me think about the fact that Dionysus has also kind of been made an outsider, like put in exile by Olympus. And so, like, these two kind of coupled together. They're also the two most human gods we see. They're the ones that have been kind of, like, distanced from Olympus. It's a story that feels built to both elaborate on Hephaestus and also obviously on Percy and Annabeth and on their relationship more than just kind of forcing them into the roles of Ares and Aphrodite. But I I do think the Hephaestus thing is the more important thing, especially for this scene, because this is when Hephaestus actually appears. You know, it's Annabeth steps around the shield after it's released and just immediately goes to try and figure out the machine. Oh man, there was something I wanted to keep an eye on and I, I forgot to. <laughs> I wanted to see if she figured it out. Like, because she oh. kept playing with the gears. Um, and like, I it looked like she had figured out which ones should turn, but then they just wouldn't turn. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to keep an eye on it after Hephaestus like reactivated it to see if she had figured it out. I can do that in a mm. second. But <laughs> um, so Hephaestus shows up and ev- everything about him, it's like he should be intimidating he's higher up than them he's looking down Mm -hmm. on them 
you know, he's saying things like, I'm not somebody to be pushed around while being the least threatening god we've met so far. <laughs> yeah. The way he's shot does not give him power. No. It, if anything, it takes it away. Like, I remember my first watch through of this, I was like, that was it? Like, that was... Yeah, like, we're so distant from him. Yeah. And his costuming, too. He looks... Yeah. He's like a little train conductor. Mm-hmm. He's like an old-timey train conductor with, like, a train whistle. And he blows the whistle to activate the devices. Like, this man is just in his own playground right now, like, that he built himself. Like, he's, like, again, he's in it. He is in his train conductor outfit. There's no train. <laughs> Not that you've seen. <laughs> maybe, there, maybe there's a train. Every All good theme parks have a train. Yes, thanks to Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what led me to my big thought about Hephaestus, like, the simple thing. Because then you see, like, these model planes also, like, hanging from the rafters, too, that feel very out of place. I don't I couldn't exactly tell what they were. They look kind of like planes, kind of like something. They're like, and then I was looking at those, and I was looking at his outfit, and I was looking at his whistle. That was when it all clicked together for me at the end, where I was like, oh, this man never got a childhood because he was cast out of Olympus by both of his parents, probably his mom. Like, he never got to be a kid he never got to play and he is a kid at heart like he's the tinkering god he is just playing freaking train conductor over here by himself like he just this is what Mm -hmm. he is and he's like built this huge temple to glory of traps and all of this stuff like this is all of the hephaestus that we've been told about that we've come to expect but that's not who he is that's not who we see that's not who he is when he's just hanging out by himself right it all just feels like a role that he's playing like even the way that the lines are delivered when he says you walk out of here with that shield and you're a hero on your way to the greatest glory she'll be proud and you will be forgiven and all will go back to being as it is always has been always will be as it should be um crazy line we'll continue to talk about that one but the way that it's delivered is so like that's not at all something that he believes in no it sounds like he's just reading a brochure like (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i i was so struck by in this scene hephaestus and annabeth talking to each other both as children who have now been tossed aside by their mothers and who like neither of them want to be like their family that it all came back to for me what I felt like was was tying the Aries scenes and these scenes together how both of them it comes down to how powerful empathy and compassion are because Mm. this is why Hephaestus lets Percy go is that he sees himself in Annabeth's words and, mm-hmm. you know, she's able to, through telling him her experience and her story, make him realize that she is just like him. And on the other hand, there's Grover, who we know is the empath and mm-hmm. is so perceptive, like we talked about in episode three. And he's able to, because of that, this is the other side of his empathy. He's able to look at Ares and see through him, is able to, because he sees Ares so clearly, manipulate him by playing the exact role that he knows Ares will enjoy (laughs) say the words that Ares wants him to say and so it was kind of these two different examples of what you can do with the traits that are not god-given and that the Olympians don't share and how powerful and different that makes our main trio from their family because all three of them are different than that yeah and I also I thought it was really elegant considering what I mentioned with the setup of the machine in which is, again, as I mentioned, a machine putting up a facade of being complicated to be intimidating. And Annabeth stares at it, understands it, figures it out. 
In this scene, we see her trying to do the same thing with this machine. She's trying to turn gears. I don't know if she figured it out or not. We'll find out. I'm going to check if she figured it out. You know, like all of this stuff overcomplicating things, turning gears, whatnot, sacrifices. All you had to do was make a connection. Mm-hmm. So reconnect a piece of this family, basically. This is where we're seeing, like, the gears turning, if you will, of like, okay, but like, how do we make this a happy family story? Yeah, with the lines that I just read, because Annabeth replies to them with, it isn't how it should be, it isn't. I love that that is something that we're getting into from Annabeth's perspective. Like, just the fact that we are now, we're saying right now, the way things are right now is not the way it should be, and someone should do something about that. Mm. Very important for the rest of the series. Like, the fact that it's Annabeth saying it and not Luke, this kind of, like, all will go back to the way it has always been, always will be, and as it should be. And Annabeth saying we need to break that cycle. No. It ensures that we really hear that when Luke says it later on, because it's been said already by someone as smart as Annabeth and as sympathetic as Annabeth. Kind of like Sally having the monster lines before Medusa does. But the other thing about this line, where she lists eat or be eaten, power and glory and nothing else matters, um, and then mm -hmm. lists all of her family members who are like that, Luke is like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was like, oh, the return of, of glory. Where is this sentence going to go? And then it kept going and I was like, ah, Luke is too much like his family. And that's why all of this happens. <laughs> that's insane. Because <laughs> like we talked about that in our first episode from a different angle based on the speech mm -hmm. that he gives at the end where it's just the, the way that he's trying to defeat Western civilization is itself wrapped up in Western civilization. And so he's mm -hmm. going to get stuck in it. But here it's very explicitly, no, he's he's also too much like his family. That's crazy. And I know that you've seen the end. And <laughs> I, like, I, f I can feel you thinking about what happens in episode eight. I think you should stop. <laughs> just stop thinking about it. Yeah, I'll just... <laughs> that's so... I, 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 didn't think, I didn't think about Luke through this, but that, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. So, a funny story. We don't see the machine turn back on. It starts to pan as if you're going to see it's it. It's ambiguous. Yep, it starts to pan like you're about to see it, but then Annabeth stands up and walks to the other side of the throne, so you don't get to see whether Annabeth figured it out or not. So I'm going to fit that into my story and say that she figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who says differently is wrong, because I've decided that. <laughs> I think that's the moral of this episode, right? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the moral. It's whatever your story is, whatever you decide to be. Yeah. <laughs> they bring the shield back to Ares. I love that Annabeth's the one that gets to carry it, because she's the one who got it. It's her glory. It's her glory. So Ares keeps his end of the deal. Um, he gets in the truck that'll take them to Vegas. He says that Hermes hangs out there. I was like, okay, a shift. Mm -hmm. Then Ares says that he would wish them luck, but what good would it do? And Percy says that they're not going to fail. Ares gets under his skin again saying, you know, your dad had plenty of kids. He stopped caring about once he lost interest. And that, that triggers Percy. <laughs> mm -hmm. He says, we're not going to fail and I'm getting pretty tired of you saying it. You think you know who I am, but you don't. And if you aren't careful, you're going to find out. Great line. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this is like book Percy challenging Ares. This is the energy. This mm -hmm. is... And I mean... It's the kind of thing that's perfect to get under Percy's skin because, you know, Percy has this new faith in his dad. He knows his dad is paying attention mm -hmm. to him and Ares is like, mm -hmm. that will not last. I have seen it time and time again. He's going to stop caring eventually. Yeah. And in the myths, it, it happens in the myths. He's not only like Theseus. So again, a, a great example of Ares using his words to antagonize people rather than just his aura, which I, I kind of like, 
I don't know if I like it more, but I like it. I think it's cool yeah. that Ares just kind of has this way with words, despite seeming like he wouldn't based on the fact that he yeah. let Grover manipulate him so easily. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he is getting into fights on Twitter, so. He's great at fighting, great at starting a fight, not great at having a conversation where you're both friends. <laughs> he sees Grover being nice to him and is like, ah, I'm sure this is how this conversation is supposed to go, right? <laughs> and then they climb into the truck. And as soon as the doors close, we get from Grover that he thinks that he knows who stole the Master Bolt. Dun dun dun! Grover, you're beautiful. I love you. <laughs> I love. Imagine if at the beginning of episode six, Grover was like, it's Luke. <laughs> Wild. Grover. Wild. <laughs> Grover. <laughs> so final thoughts on this episode? This was so good. My favorite parts were the the Grover Aries stuff. I know. Scenes. So good. But I mean, all of the changes to the Tunnel of Love were amazing also. This one might be my favorite. I think this is my this might be my favorite. Oh, like of all of them? Maybe. I have to rewatch 6, 7 and 8 again to know for sure, but this might be. So, beads. There are many options for this one. I think I'm going to go with the train whistle. <laughs> okay. I love his little reed pipe train whistle. Where is Grover's reed pipes? He sings camp songs now. <laughs> I'm gonna do... First thought is like the plate of fries and burgers because I love the... Yeah, the stacked up. scene yeah. so much, yeah. The other easy answer is like one of the frescoes. I guess just the like centerpiece, the throne one. Mm -hmm. What do I prefer? The fresco is a, is a prettier bead, so I might just go with that just to make mm. my necklace prettier. Once again, thinking ahead so that my necklace will be prettier than Emily's <laughs> part of the grand scheme. <laughs> Can I go with Hephaestus' entire outfit then? His little, his little bandana, <laughs> his little overalls. I love it. Mm -hmm. His little beard mustache situation. His mustache. <laughs> the prospector mustache or whatever. Yes, and I'll make it, I'll make it beautiful. <laughs> Donut. Next time, we take a zebra to Vegas. Um, also, you might have noticed we don't have any more interviews that we're sharing in this episode, but we have some some stuff coming up. So keep 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 your eyes out. Keep your eyeballs out. Yeah, lining some things up currently. So thank you to our patrons: R.K., Window Wells, Emily Ann Bonnie, Roman Consul, Latino Kaya. Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila, Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, hi Charlie, Bronte Lebo, Chief in Plays, and Robert Gamer. Hi Robert. If you would like to join our Patreon, uh, we currently have up our predictions episode where you can hilariously hear us get, get some stuff wrong and right. <laughs> Yes, but hilariously for this episode, you can hear us correctly guess that Grover is going to have a B-plot and it's going to be him hanging out in the diner with Ares. <laughs> <laughs> and more, you can hear us be disastrously wrong and completely right. And also, I have been recording my reactions to all of these episodes and those will be posted soon. Apparently, the episode 8 one is going to be something to watch. <laughs> I hope it is. I don't want to hype it up too much because I don't, I, I don't know how you're going to actually react to this stuff. 
if I'm like when I'm with other people, I don't really have like big physical reactions. But if I'm in a room by myself, I, I, I don't talk a lot, but I do physically react a lot. Like big facial expressions, standing up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I've been trying to talk more because I know that people are watching me. So hopefully it's entertaining. Um, I haven't gotten around to editing them together so that you can like see what I'm watching at the same time as I'm watching it. Um, so those will go up once I do that. Yeah, that and more to come. So you can find the link to join us there in the description of this episode or in our link tree on all of our social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PJOPod. Um, also, please continue to interact with us there and tell us your thoughts on these episodes. Send in your emails, monsterdonutpodcast.gmail.com. I've been loving all the thoughts that we've seen so far. I, I can't wait to wrap this season up with everybody. Also, if you want any of our merch, that's also available through our link tree and at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. Get your Cleos and Nostos shirts. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you feel so moved, leaving us a rating or review on wherever you listen to us is always really great. Let us know how hyped you are for the as, we, as we're coming up on the end of this series. I want to hear predictions because I have my predictions. I want to hear what other people think is actually going to happen. Um, in the meantime, though, I hope y'all having a great January. We certainly are. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you.